Hey everyone, welcome to Savage to Sage, where we explore the evolution of entrepreneurs. In this show, we hear from leaders on the challenges and breakthroughs that have shaped them on their journey toward becoming a sage. Hey everyone, welcome to the Savage to Sage podcast. Today we have Julie Kratz that's on the show uh, with us. Julie is the Chief Engagement Officer for Next Pivot Point. Uh, previously uh, served as the innovation specialist at Nationwide Insurance and was the client inclusion manager at Caterpillar. Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, wonderful. So can you share with me a bit more about your companies that you've started, kind of the path that led you to where you're at today? Yeah, it's been a a meandering, non-direct path as most career paths are, but I spent 12 years in the corporate environment doing a variety of things, as you just shared, Um, everything from the construction industry, the financial industry, to consulting. And uh, that's where I kind of concluded my corporate career was helping organizations um, with things like leadership development. And I just fell in love with the work as a facilitator. And, you know, I just had my first kiddo. I'm the breadwinner. Not an ideal time, but actually one of my clients at the time said, hey, you're really good at facilitating these conversations. Would you want to come work for us as a contractor? And I thought, hmm, never thought about starting my own business, but what a cool opportunity to do the work I really love. So why not go for it? And the worst that happens is I quit, go back and get another job. And so that's what I did. It was a big leap. Um, and I've been doing it for eight years now, proud, um, approaching the anniversary going into year nine now. And it's um, it's important work. Uh, the work that I started doing was more on the overall leadership front, but I quickly realized the need for diversity and inclusion. And this was before DEI was an acronym that was used on a regular basis. And so I studied a lot on allyship, researched, wrote books about it, continue to host a podcast about it, um, and have conversations with corporate folks about how to be, you know, more inclusive leader, how to be a better ally at work. And so that's that's my life's work. Uh, that's what I hope to keep doing. We're in an interesting influx period right now, at least in the corporate environment. But I'm hoping once um, things get a little settled with uncertainty, people realize this is a journey, not a destination. You got to keep at it. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And I'm I'm going to pull up a little bit kind of to what your LinkedIn profile says. And it, it just talks about facilitating inclusive exp- uh, experiences to help people feel seen, heard, and belong at work. Um, was that kind of a nutshell of the type of work that you like to bring to your clients? Yeah. Yeah. That's our best way to sum up what we do when people ask you what you do. Um, the short answer is DEI training and consulting, but more the outcome that we're looking for is don't all humans feel like deserve to feel a sense of belonging in the work that they do for 40 plus hours a week? Like, why do we think that's a nice to have and not a must have? And unfortunately, the data just on belonging alone is more people do not feel that in the workplace than do. And especially for marginalized groups, you know, women, folks of color, LGBTQ plus folks are still very closeted in the workplace. 
um, those with disabilities, veterans, the list goes on. And if we're not creating inclusive workspaces where people feel like they can bring themselves and their best version of themselves, then there's no way we're getting the best products, services, the best quality and productivity out of folks. So it just, there's a business case, but I think there's even a stronger, a human case for why we should be doing more of this. Yes. Yes. And so we might be getting a little off topic here, but what are some of the the common hurdles that you feel like you have to overcome in order for people to kind of say, Hey, I mean, yes, there's the business case, of course, that would support that. But like, what are the common hurdles that you get for people wanting to invest in this type of training uh, to get the best out of everyone? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of common hurdles, as you say. One is it's a check the box, one and done kind of exercise. And we saw a lot of performative allyship, um, especially a few years ago, where companies, you know, put up the, the picture that looked like a diverse environment and made the statement and maybe, you know, did some social media stuff or some donations. And it was like, all right, we're done. And unfortunately, we've seen that with unconscious bias training over the years is just like an annual training that everyone has to do kind of like sexual harassment training or like, you know, some sort of industry required training. That's really not how it should work. It should be a bigger conversation. It needs to be a conversation uh, that we should be having ongoing and it should be embedded in our culture, right? Like just like anything else that we would be doing to improve our culture, it should be the lens which we look filter everything through for the employee experience. Um, so unfortunately, people still re- regard it as, oh, I already did that. Like, no, like that, that's not how this works. Like you got to keep doing this. And that doesn't mean hiring external trainers and consultants all the time. You build up the internal capability inside your organization. And the other drawback or hurdle is oftentimes the HR leader is tasked with this. Well, <laughs> I can see why, you know, it's a people issue, but going, having a degree in HR, you know, being uh, SHRM certified, et cetera, doesn't really prepare you for DEI work. Uh, it's not, DEI hasn't been a part of that curriculum historically. It's, you know, changing obviously, but just because somebody has experience leading that, oftentimes they're very new to the DEI world. And it's primarily white women that are in those positions that may not have the lived experience of other dimensions of diversity too. Um, and I say that as a white woman myself, no, no shame in that. But I think we got to do better to really think intentionally about setting those folks up for success. Okay, I'm getting completely off topic as far as your personal journey, but I have one more important Please. question. Where where does this ideally sit within an organization? Where does this type of um, development, you know, formation, I'll call it formation, just kind of like formation for company culture fit? I'd be curious to know your insight on that. Oh, great, great question. And ideally, it's at the C-suite level, just like any other important role. You know, your operations, your marketing, your tech, HR, et cetera. Um, Because that's another challenge I see is if we do have a DEI role and it's nested under HR, you know, you're several lines of communication down from senior leadership. And so we really need to think strategically about the chief diversity officer being on the executive team. Because 
is important, they're an executive just like any other line of our business. And so it should be managed at the executive level. What that does is it creates a level playing field for that person and empowers them to be seen as a senior leader. They can align the other senior leaders on inclusive behavior and more importantly, be taken seriously by the rest of the organization. And so that that's a big challenge. And, and for smaller organizations, I don't know if it always makes sense to have a diversity person, you know, a few hundred people or so. You probably have an HR person that's doing it. The other, for smaller organizations, the other best practice I've seen is having a really intentional um, council of leaders around the organization that are leaders, that are influential, that have access to resources. Um, those are big things that are also sometimes missing from this work. And so sometimes having a cross-section of folks where, you know, it's it's part of your job, there's time carved out in your day uh, to do this work, and it's specific, you know, 25% of your time spent on this, leading um, DEI cultural pieces. And there's like a rolling off period, you know, you do this for a year or two, and then new leaders come on. So hopefully you get, you know, a lot of different people engaged in the work too. But it really, I think the key thing is like, make sure these folks are empowered and, and, and that they have leadership roles so that the rest of the organization sees this as important. Yeah, that makes tons of sense. Yeah, thanks for that. Okay. Um, we kind of know the problem that you're solving. <laughs> if we were to go back to your personal journey, kind of like you were in the corporate world, you know, you were kind of doing similar types of roles, I believe, but you wanted to kind of like, I want to go all in and do this for myself, you know, kind of talk about that decision-making process. How was that for you? Yeah. Yeah, it was um, a pivot point, (laughs) as I uh, pun intended, uh, because that's how I coined my business is, you know, I think there's back to that scent, that need for belonging. Mm. As a human, you know, y'all remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Do yes. we remember that, right? Self-actualization like, is the top. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And very few people get to that self-actualization. But on the way, you know, once our basic physical needs are met and we feel safe physically, then we see, seek out more psychological safety, meaning connection and belonging, the mid-tier on the pyramid. And so when I think about the lack of belonging that I experienced in the workplace, It was just all these little microaggressions, these little non-inclusive behaviors that were subtle signals that I didn't belong. Um, The two examples I'll give you, I mean, in in all industries are pretty white male dominated. So it's the the ones I'll mention happen to be very much so, but really you can't find an industry. Look at the top, even nonprofit. (laughs) That's just how the world works. So for me, you know, Caterpillar was my first job out of college. And so construction, right? So it's me and all the dudes all the time. And by the end of my tenure there, I spent four years there and I was doing really well. I really enjoyed the experience. I mean, it was, they were ahead of their time on employee engagement and safety and some key things, not, not so much diversity, but and then in my four years there, you know, here I am wearing seal toed boots that are men's shoes because they didn't make women's. Uh, khaki polo, my cat coat that's also a male coat, you know, no makeup, no jewelry, hair tied back. I mean, some of that was for safety, but it was just, 
you know, when I look at pictures of myself, I don't even recognize myself. It was, I was covering and I didn't know I was doing it at a time because I was trying to dial up the masculine qualities of me to fit in um, with the majority group. And we don't even know we're doing it as human beings. But I remember that summer when, before I went back to school to get my MBA, you know, I just remember this resettling into myself and wearing different clothes and, you know, doing different things with my hair. And it was like, oh, I have permission to be more feminine again. So you just didn't realize, and a lot of women do this in more male dominated environments, just subconsciously, we're not even aware of it. And then the other experience I had another book in my corporate career was in consulting in agriculture. So again, super male dominated industry as many are. But I remember being in rooms with older white men and they would constantly turn to me and say things like, you know, like go order lunch or like get me coffee. You know, like I was some sort of like administrative assistant, which I was not. I was the strategy lead. But it and it were also these comments of like, you remind me of my daughter. And it's like, we're at work. Like, please do not treat me. And it's just belittling. Like I now feel less than, but you're not saying that to the younger man sitting next to me. You're advocating, you're mentoring him, but you're treating me like less than. So these are still very commonplace behaviors, unfortunately, today in the workplace where we, if you're a part of a marginalized group, you're constantly having to like squeeze yourself into boxes that you probably don't fit in. And so that's why we're seeing, you know, the great resignation, the continuous rates of really high burnout. Uh, I think organizations think they can hit the pause button on this stuff, but you're just not going to retain talent doing things old school <laughs> business as usual. Yeah. And I think the the scene you mentioned specifically related to kind of, uh, there's so much, so many good things that you kind of said there um, that I want to take a second to reflect on. But you're talking about like the rates, uh, you know, specifically with the relates Do people feel, I'm not sure if it was seen or heard or, you know, that they belong to their work, Yeah, but it was like yeah. less than half. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That like people don't feel connected in a sense to their overall work. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah. There's some um, interesting research out there. There's a couple resources. SHRM has a lot of really good data on this, SHRM, Society of Human Resource Management. Um, And then the other one I'd point to is Edelman does a trust barometer, really cool report. And both of those, you can get a lot of data on their websites for free. So if you're interested in where I got this information, that data is constantly changing. But we know that across industries, people are looking to organizations, to corporate environments, much more so to lead social change. And they have a higher expectation of their employers to be inclusive. But there's a disconnect because we're seeing most people, over 60% of folks do not think that their company is truly committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I don't blame them, right? It seems very, again, performative. We're talking about it, but we're not actually doing it. Nothing's really changed. Our representation hasn't changed. The perceptions of inclusion haven't changed. We're not tackling the systems that are inequitable, not measuring it. We don't have a strategy around it. I could go on and on and on. But when I look at an organization to be a good partner, that's that's what I look at is like, do you have a strategy or senior leadership engaged? Are you consistent about this? It's not that one and done, right? 
do you, are you willing to address systems and measure outcomes and, and maybe just have one goal? It doesn't have to be super complex and it can even be an activity-based goal, but have a goal so that, because otherwise what we see is like, oh, that training didn't work. It's like, well, why, why didn't it work? <laughs> How are you measuring that? It's like, what tells you it's not working? And yeah, one-time training probably doesn't work. So yeah, this belonging thing is a big deal. Um, and, and I think organizations are really grappling with how to address it. Okay. So much I want to go into there, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pause and, uh, just continue to hear more about, hear about more of your journey. Um, as you've, you know, as you've led, as you've started, you know, next pivot point, what were some of the kind of the, you know, biggest professional and personal challenges through that eight years, like for you, I'd be curious to know. Right now, I'm really experiencing just some disconnect. One of the things when you do really personal, missional, values-oriented work is you get caught up in the emotions and the cyclicality that the work environment has. So I think that's been something that's been really hard for me. And this happened you know, three years ago, obviously, when COVID onset, my business went from huge sales pipeline, all these speaking events to literally zero within days. And so I know the world, everyone experienced hardships during that time. But for me, it was like, shoot, how am I going to support my family? At the time I was also pregnant. And so it was just like, I don't know what to do. Um, And, Mm. you know, thankfully and unthankfully, I, you know, things quickly heightened very much in the summer of 2020 for obvious reasons. But I wish I hadn't had to come to that. It was really hard to literally have a conversation with somebody early May and then be like, D, it's just not important right now. And then June 1st, it's super important. It's like, hmm, what changed exactly? You know, like rhetorically, I we all know what happened, but yeah. the same thing's kind of happening right now. And unfortunately, you know, especially my friends of color are just really personally hurting because you said you cared and you really don't, right? And so it feels, it's almost worse. Like I tell people, if you don't really care about tea, don't, don't do it. <laughs> like don't if you hate, yeah. just don't. Like it's yeah. going to come off yeah. performative and authentic. It, it will cause a backlash. Now, yeah. if you genuinely care and you're willing to do some hard things, absolutely. It doesn't have to be super hard that we can baby step it, right? It's a journey. Yeah. And so... <clears throat> And that for me, I get caught up in the emotions of the roller coaster ride that is the world. And we know uncertainty is unprecedented and very likely to continue. And so everything we see in the news cycle, the economy, et cetera, is only going to continue that uncertainty. And so we need to plan and prioritize things like DEI, even when it's scary. And that's what I haven't seen other than like big global organizations, I just haven't seen that level of unwavering commitment. The, the thing that has me optimistic is outside of the US, there are increasingly regulations around this, whether it's um, ESG or DEI, but Europe, you have to report these things. Um, APAC is starting to get way more focused on it too. So while it's strife here and it's gotten unnecessary pol- political, I see a lot of optimism abroad and hopefully that will pressure global organizations based in the U S as well. But 
for now, for now, we're in a little bit of a murky situation and it's hard. I think that's been the biggest, the hardest thing as an entrepreneur in this space is just riding that roller coaster ride and not knowing when the ups and downs are going to happen. Yeah, no, that makes tons of sense. And thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. One of the things that, you know, we typically talk about when, you know, the entrepreneurship, we call it savage to sage, right? So savage is the courage to go after your kind of your dream and your goal um, and kind of make it work, you know, within the world. Um, The sage is kind of like the transformational journey, right? When you're like, hey, I'm going to go take on, I'm going to go take this on. And you, you know, quickly find out all of the obstacles that will prevent you from, you know, accomplishing your vision. You get thrown into lots of situations and you essentially, it facilitates advice, sage advice, those types of things. One of the things that we talk about is that, hey, for entrepreneurs, burnout is is really high. Self-care is uh, something that can be seen as an afterthought. One of the ways that I wanted to kind of ask you is like, is there ways that you practically try to fuel and inspire yourself as a leader for the mission that you're on? Um, and I'd be curious to know about those details. You're right. I mean, self-care, I think, is just such a taboo. Like, oh, you have time for like meditation and yoga? Like, yeah. And it makes me more productive. So, you know, no shame in that. I actually went to a hot yoga class yesterday. So one of the things I do is if I have a break in my day and, you know, we're based here in Indianapolis, so the weather is not great this time of year, but when things are nice out, like get, I have a break, I'm going to go for a spin outside and just get some air and go for a walk. Um, My morning routine, I think is what keeps me sane too. And it's all the things that we know to do but we don't always do. I, I know all the shoulds because I've read all the books. And then do you actually do it, Julie? Eh, I'd like to think I'm more consistent than that. But the thing I've found is that first hour of the morning, you know, not getting busy in our email inboxes and responding to the universe, even though it's so tempting to do that, but spend some time journaling and thinking and you know, really being methodical and intentional about the energy I want to bring to the day. And then the other thing that I do and and working out, you know, doing some stretching and some aerobic activity just to get my blood flowing, it brings a different level of energy to my day. And and the other thing I've found is I used to work, I mean, the early days, the first three years are rough of a business. It's just tough. It just really is. I wouldn't relive those years if my life depended on it. I don't think I'd go back. It's just like middle school. Nope. Don't want to do that again. Rough times. Because, you know, you get to know as people don't know you, you have to do a lot of extra sales activity. It's painful. But once you get f- first through those first three years, you're not that any, it, it's still a roller coaster ride. But for me, I didn't have to work like eight to eight every day and on the weekends. It was now it's more of a like an 8.30 to four kind of day. And we do a four day work week. So we do not work on my team on Fridays. We just started doing that this year and it has been I have noticed no difference in our level of production. Um, unfortunately, the industry is just a certain way where sales haven't been quite there, but um, that's more of an if function of the industry. So I think self-care, you know, finding that balance, like no one sits on their deathbed, like thinking I should have worked more, right? <laughs> like I should have made yeah. more money. Like that's not a motivator. It's 
the time we get to spend with our family and our friends and community. We're a social species as humans. So prioritizing relationships also is so highly correlated to overall happiness. And I have found relationships personally to have professional benefits as well. You know, there's not a, you know, personal and professional, like hard line. There never was, we kind of created that, but certainly it's, it's more blurred than ever now. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. That's all. That's really, really good. Can you tell me a bit like what you've learned as far as your evolution as a founder for your company? Like what are some things like, I know there's could be tons of things that you can express that like, Hey, let me write a book on it. But there's like kind of something that's like, that really sticks out to you. Um, Like I've really learned about starting a business. Yeah, I think it's one of the things, and this is really interesting is like, pay attention to what people tell you you're good at. So one of my dearest friends, my roommate in MBA school um, used to tell me all the time, Julie, you're just really good at business, like overall. It's like, mm. okay, well, like we're studying and I'm paying a lot of money for this degree. So I hope so. Right. <laughs> I just didn't think it was a big deal. Like, of course. But, you know, I think as an entrepreneur, you have to do all the things. Like I'm in QuickBooks one second on a sales call the other. I mean, that's a hard switch. <laughs> all these transitions right in your yes. day. I do all the marketing, you know, the sales and I have people that help me now, but wearing all those hats all the time, that mental transition space is a lot. And so I think it's important as an entrepreneur that you know your strengths. And I, I tend to be good at overall management. I am not good at anything detail oriented, which is why I literally have someone on my team called the head of details because she helps me with that. She knows I don't read emails in totality. Like I I skimmed it, right? Like that's, I know the gist. It's good enough. So know your strengths and like, really, I mean, I think everyone knows this, but like really authentically get some feedback from folks that know you really well. They're going to be honest with you about your strengths and your opportunities and try to delegate and hire or, you know, get a contract or whatever that looks like for the things that are your problem areas, because it's going to show up. And so I tell clients that all the time. That's why Catherine's here. She's our head of details because I admittedly am not good at details, but she will send you everything that you need. I promise. If you have questions, absolutely answer them. So just be open and honest about it. And people are like, oh good, because I noticed that about her and that was kind of driving me nuts. So if you (laughs) honest, right? Like they know, just because you can say it, it, like they know you're not fooling anybody. Like just be honest about it. And people I've found appreciate that sincerity and that authenticity, especially if you you say it in a genuine way, you know, they don't want to say like, I'm a perfectionist. That's my weakness. Like no one, like be better than that. (laughs) So we've all, I think it's just like bringing your full human self. Yeah, that's funny. That's great. Um, If if you know that's a great point but as far as like if you were to um somebody that wants to start a business somebody that wants to kind of go in the entrepreneurship realm somebody that's kind of up and coming what what would be like kind of like your top advice for them um as they're you know when they want to start their business become a founder yeah i'd say go for it i mean so much has changed in 8 years it's not that difficult to start your own business i, I think people build up you know benefits and 
how do I pay all these taxes? And people just throw around a lot of inaccurate information. You know, you're you're not paying, you know, 50% or whatever in taxes. That's not how it works. Um, you pay, you know, your your net profit, you know, you do have to claim half of that as your salary and then your tax based on that, which is usually a much smaller percentage or much smaller salary than you might have made in corporate state. Um, settings. Although, of course, if you're wildly successful, maybe that's not the case. Um, but all that to say, I think these like financial obstacles that we put up aren't very real. So I always encourage people, start with a side hustle, right? See what works, do some research, dig around, see what ideas stick and what don't. And if you start to get a positive response and you start to get, you know, people vote with their dollars, if you start to get some evidence that you have a good business model, you know, at some point you've got to leave your your paid gig and take a leap of faith that it's going to work. Um, I also think, you know, the government we we can access you know very low interest rate loans. Um, you can get people to fund you. I mean, there's all sorts of if financial is the obstacle and you have a good idea, like I challenge you to really dig into the resources that are available to support you, especially for marginalized groups, for women, for folks of color. You know, there's a lot of support mechanisms out there that you can tap into. Um, and the last thing I'd say is like, just <clears throat> don't stop learning. I think that's that's one of my strengths is I'm a learner and I'm constantly looking for like, what are the trends? What's new? What are new techniques? Like, you know, just reading a couple books a month and listening to some podcasts. One of the ones I love for entrepreneurs that I listened to a lot those rough first three years was Entrepreneur on Fire. That was just a, a good one back then. I, I don't know what the current state is. I haven't listened to it lately, but there's a lot of podcasts out there that you can hear other people's stories and be like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. I'm going to borrow that. Or like, oh yeah, I can relate to that. Like not so good experience. It's not just me. So again, last thing, you know, education and community, back to community. One of the things that was really helpful to me is having a peer group especially it was like year three through five. And it was really helpful to compare notes with a community of like-minded entrepreneurs that were, you know, struggling. They were, you know, having successes we could celebrate with each other. We used to work on our strategic plans together. It was just lovely to have a community and there's lots of great communities you can tap into as well. That's great. What's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Like they've heard a bit about what you do. Um, might share some interest. Like, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, yeah, it's super easy. Nextpivotpoint.com. Um, you can go there. There's lots of great resources to check out. I'd invite you to check out the resources page. We have a plethora of you know vetted complimentary um, resources if you're interested in the topic of DEI. But if you want to get in touch and talk, you know, chat about your organization, um, your journey, um, my contact information is on the website, so you can absolutely go there and then. LinkedIn as well. Um, I know you and I are mutually connected there with a lot of like-minded entrepreneurs as well. Um, and that's just a great place. I, I think that tends to be the social pl- media platform that's the least negative, although it's not It's not immune. Social media can be used as a weapon. Uh, but you can just look for me there. I post very regularly. Uh, Julie Kratz, K-R-A-T-Z. Um, uh, just give me a follow and uh, then you can get a slow drip in your uh, news cycle, hopefully with some positive vibes and DEI as well. I'm doing that now as we speak. Julie, um, I I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Um, I love what you're doing and um, I hope that um, our viewers uh, can see the value in it. and. Um, 
yeah, I just look forward to staying connected. So thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This is fun. Cool. All right. Until next time, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's interview. To view show notes or hear more episodes, please visit www.savagetosage.com.